Welcome to Carbon Times. Following the success of Series 1 in 2021, we are kicking off 2022 with Series 2. In this series, we are talking about the decarbonisation of domestic homes. With around 25 million domestic homes in the UK, it is no small challenge. We will be talking to industry specialists, the regulators, people that can drive the agenda forward and homeowners making the transition. Thank you for continuing to listen as we pull together people from across the industry to keep the conversation going. Our continued aim being to get the industry talking. We all have a responsibility to drive the decarbonisation of the places and the spaces we use. Housing is a huge contributor to our greenhouse gas emissions. It's about 14% in total of our current emissions. So, you know, if we're going to get to net zero, getting our homes to zero is really critical. Government needs to bring forward that zero carbon homes standard. It needs to up the standard uh, and it needs to demonstrate that we are really committed to making sure that we reduce our emissions in the UK. Welcome to this, the first episode of Series 2 of the Carbon Times podcast. In this series, we'll be focusing on the decarbonisation of the UK domestic homes. A few statistics before we start off. There are around 25 million homes in the UK. 16% of those homes are currently under social landlordship, which equates to around 4.1 million. The estimated cost of decarbonisation of the social housing market is estimated to be somewhere in the region of £104 billion. I'm joined today by Will Waller from Arcadis. Will, would you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your career to date? Sure. Hi, Paul. And hi, everyone listening. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm Will Waller, a Senior Director at Arcadis, and my role is as a build-to-rent market leader. So looking after what we do across the build-to-rent sector and working with my colleagues to take the best of Arcadis to our clients. Excellent. Thank you very much. So as well as your build-to-rent experience, I know you've got some social housing experience, having you know been aware of your work career for a few years now. I just want to have a quick conversation in that space first, because I think that frames the challenge quite well that we all have. So if we think about how this story links to the government's plan for the decarbonisation of the UK by 2050, and that greener buildings being a key objective in the 10-point plan for the green industrial revolution, it highlights the importance of being able to decarbonise homes. And it's no small task. 25 million homes up to 2050 is a mammoth task. And if we start in the social housing market where that cost of £104 billion is estimated in that for the conversion of 4.1 million homes. Now, some of those homes will already be efficient and they'll already be at a relatively decent standard because they'll be relatively modern. But maybe 60% of those homes are older and will need some significant amount of renovation. Now, it does look like funding is going to be provided from the government. And I know some of your clients have probably applied for funding for public building decarbonisation and aspects like that before. What's your thoughts around the challenge in the social housing market, Will? Yeah, well, I think it's, a, as you say, it is a big challenge right across the residential sector. And of course, when you've got big managed portfolios and you've got some of the rule changes coming down the way, 
in the next kind of five years, what needs to be done could potentially seem quite daunting. But I think, you know, actually what we see out there is clients getting on the front foot, setting themselves some really ambitious goals and objectives. And actually the exciting thing, I think, is that across the residential sector, that includes the kind of registered provider and kind of more social side of it. Actually, you know, organisations are working together you know, private and public sector to start moving towards realising some of those goals and objectives. So I think that's the opportunity in a way is to kind of work together to get to those ends. I think the working together part is really important. I suppose one of the building blocks to that collaboration between the public and the private sector has already begun and has been in place for quite a while where any new development of, you know, of significant size has to have a certain proportion allocated to social housing so that interaction between the two activities already exists to some degree i think so that should only help to drive the collaboration but in our last series when we were talking widely about the decarbonization of real estate that word collaboration came up consistently throughout it with the organization that you work for being in consultancy do you see your role as being key in that collaboration piece and to what extent yeah, definitely. So, you know, as Arcadis, sustainability and helping our clients reach their sustainability kind of goals, that's a central plank of our overall strategy globally. And, you know, our sort of purpose as an organisation is to improve the quality of life, which, of course, this whole topic speaks to very closely. And I think, you know, as a consultant, our role, of course, can be a whole variety of things. But Certainly one of those things is helping our clients collaborate with others, whether that be in their own sector, whether that be with their suppliers and partners, or whether it be with others in other sectors. And I guess helping them connect up with the tools and, of course, things like data that they need to help make that a reality as well. So that's certainly part of our role. And I think, as you alluded to, you know, we're working across sectors, in fact, but also certainly in the residential sector with clients doing exactly that. So if we know that social housing takes uh, a portions 4.1 million of the 25 million UK homes, then that leaves a large sector in private ownership. So with your experience from a build to rent perspective, there is a greater driver there from owner occupier, I think, for us to be able to sort of talk to in that sense that for all it makes it a little bit easier to regulate or to force some change in build to rent because of rental periods and rent renewals, all that type of aspect. What's your experience to date around how decarbonisation is linking to the build to rent market? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So I think one of the really exciting things about the build to rent sector is, as you say, it presents huge opportunities, not just in the sustainability space, others too. But if we focus on the sustainability space, you know, as you quite rightly say, when the kind of ownership and long-term interest in the asset is aggregated in the way that it often is in built rent, you're right, that creates an environment where actually there's a long-term view, the objectives involved can be aligned with the objectives of kind of the wider stakeholder map. And it creates an environment where stuff can be done in this space, for example, really well. And we you know we've definitely seen in the sector there's been an increasing focus on you know sustainability and net zero, for example, in recent years. And I guess there are a number of drivers for that. First and foremost, the appetite of investors to work towards an even greater kind of ESG focus. 
But of course, also there's statutory changes on the horizon, whether that be, you know, the future home standard, for example, which is going to drive the need for some considerable reductions in carbon on new homes. But also what we mustn't forget is customers as well. And, you know, obviously with the emphasis around the climate emergency, with much more exposure around that in the press and so on, you know, more and more end customers, their minds are focused on this. And so that's also a factor at play as well. But I think, you know, the key thing is that there are probably different ways to get to the same outcome here. And for organisations, it's very important to develop the strategy that is right for that organisation and its objectives. And, you know, I suppose just to bring that to life, the actual philosophy involved in delivering, let's just say, for example, net zero, that might differ depending on the organisation. And when you're thinking about it rather technically, you can have a whole range of different solutions that deliver an outcome. So, for example, it might be more MEP led or it could be more fabric led or there's a whole different range of blends. So there's lots of clients to get into around that. But I think, as you say, overall, the build trend sector is a great vehicle for kind of making that change. So it's around 12% of UK properties that are privately rented at the moment. Have you seen a shift in that over the years? You know, we all see on the news all the time, the difficulties people find in being able to access the mortgage market, you know, especially younger people. Have you seen growth in the build to rent sector linked to that? I think that's an interesting question. Probably yes, in terms of, I think, you know, the national data shows that the number of renters has increased significantly over the last 20 years. And so, yeah, that sort of demand level has increased. But I think also in terms of the outlook, the consensus generally is that that will continue to grow. And I think it's there is some element that's partly related to the well-documented affordability challenges with getting on the housing ladder. But there are other factors at play. And actually, we can't forget that many renters choose to rent for a whole variety of reasons, You know, whether that's because they'd like the flexibility or you know they just like it. So I think, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons in the mix. But yeah, broadly speaking, the outlook is that there are going to be more renters. And I think also, you know, perhaps the profile of renters will change over time as well. Perhaps the average age will go up and such like. So really, that is a big part of what the built rent sector overall is looking at in terms of how do you bring the best customer experience to that whole different variety of customers and for the long term, of course. So there's a really good opportunity there, as I mentioned, because you have rent cycles, you know, changes to regulate and force change where buildings aren't currently at the right standard to be able to, you know, make it similar to what it is with EPCs for commercial properties at the moment where, you know, it has to be at a certain level or you can't lease, you know, you can't renew or you can't bring out a new lease on that particular property. So we might be able to exert and see some change there, which is really good. So if we link those two together, the social housing and the build to rent that accounts for around 30 percent of the uk homes market where there's a genuine real opportunity and real drive to get those done because there's organizations behind it whether it be the social landlords with their responsibilities under you know the government basically forcing them to do it by 2035 and you know quite rightly the the build to rent sector they're building new buildings so they're obviously going to be to an efficient standard and easy to convert to even more efficient going forward just before i move on to the next point are your clients seeing the drive from the customer to look for more sustainable and environmentally friendly properties which would force them to do it better if you like and make it more competitive or do you find that the sector is still building to the requirements 
I think it's actually quite difficult to answer that question in a sort of homogenous way. So, you know, probably the answer is that many customers definitely are looking for greener credentials in the places that they live. But, you know, there are consumer surveys out there that say that whilst customers want that, they don't necessarily want to pay more for it. And what is potentially a bit uncertain at the moment is whether there is a value premium associated with, for example, driving to net zero. But I think what is clear is that, you know, actually there probably is a kind of potential competitive advantage having, for example, a product that's positioned as greener and is greener. But there's also other benefits around, you know, that will help meet potentially, you know, wider corporate objectives. It might help in the planning process, you know, in terms of helping to meet local authority objectives. And it might also enable finance at preferential or, you know, more preferential rates, for example, because of the point I mentioned earlier, where, you know, there is a big focus from the kind of investment world on, on ESG. And that, of course, is driving a lot of the change as well, which is great. But I guess also overall, you know, and we, we did do a study actually at Arcadis around the future home standard and what that might mean for construction costs. And, you know, at this point in time, we do think there'll be a sort of a premium associated with meeting the future home standard and exceeding mm-hmm. it, which would basically be heading towards kind of net zero. You know, that's potentially a big challenge for the sector overall and, you know, potentially registered providers as well. But I think one thing that, you know, for example, the bill to rent and the registered provider clients have in common is that they are both taking a long-term view typically. And when you start to look at these things through the lens of whole life, and particularly over the kind of very long term, actually they start to stack up better. And particularly when you consider, as I mentioned earlier, those kind of that wider suite of objectives that organizations might have. I guess moreover as well, you know, as the supply chain gets more geared up for kind of meeting some of these targets and using new technologies and such like, we would expect with that kind of pricing to potentially basically for that premium to be eroded. And, you know, perhaps there are opportunities out there for clients to join up and, you know, work together to either solve their kind of carbon challenges or, you know, even some of the thinking perhaps around joining up to get buying gains and things like that, you know, if you're looking at kind of the technology and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting picture. But for me, I think I can see it just going in a you know, continued direction around driving really for certainly for obviously meeting the future home standard. Mm-hmm but I think probably exceeding it and heading towards net zero. That's really good. So all of those things linking together, you can see how there's enough desire and enough incentive for that side of the market to really drive it forward and really make sure that that decarbonisation agenda is achieved. And, you know, the, the targets of 2050, which would mean, you know, retrofit programmes being in place by 2030 to 2035, if that 2050 objective was to be met. So for social housing, there will be government grants and there will be, you know, money available through those methods for them to be able to do it. And hopefully that will be enough for them to be able to achieve it. For the build to rent sector, a lot of that sector is backed by institutional lending and backed by those big institutional investors. So because, as you mentioned, the ESG agenda and really access to finance is going to become more difficult unless you have a true pathway to net zero anyway. So those areas are going to help to drive that. Now, what that leaves is a potential 15 million homes in the UK owner-occupied, private owner-occupied. The incentive really is minimal because the payback periods at the moment, with the amount of investment that it would take to make your home net zero, are far beyond the time that most people would be spending in the home. 
which does present a huge challenge. I mean, I know from a you know professional standpoint, that's not really the challenge that you're looking at, you know, trying to get people to convert their homes. But what are your thoughts around that and the general public? What are we going to do to help them get there? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the sort of it's a million dollar question in a way, isn't it? And I can't claim to have a solution, unfortunately. It's a difficult one. I guess there's an element of time there. You know, it's likely that that's going to have to have a long time period of adjustment. Of course, there is some stimulus around it, you know, in terms of kind of government grant and incentivization around some of these technologies. But it's not an easy problem to solve, I, I agree. And I guess flipping it slightly, I do think that's where, you know, sectors like the built rent sector, for example, have a very valuable role to play because mm. actually they bring additionality. Yeah. Uh, additionality in terms of kind of number of good quality homes for people. But actually also additionality in terms of how these challenges are being met. And what I mean by that is, as we've talked about, they are bringing assets into existence that are going to be striving for these high levels of standards. So, mm. yeah, so I think there's no easy answer, Paul, on that one, but it's going to take probably a whole mixture of things in terms of kind of time, incentive. And, you know, I guess in the end, it will be coming down to whether people feel so strongly about the issue that they do make that investment, if they're able to, of course. Yeah, there's two challenges there, which are two key challenges. You know, are they able to? Do they have enough disposable income to be able to make the changes to their home? Do they know what the changes are? You know, that's one of the challenges I feel really is that working in and around sustainability for lots of years, it's easy for me to see the benefits and it's easy for me to relate the wider agenda to my own personal thoughts. I think that's far more difficult for other people. How do you find that in your personal life around friends and family and stuff? Because it's a real mix, you know, with the people I talk to. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, you know, there have been consumer surveys out there. I think Offgem did one relatively recently, which kind of was looking at customer attitudes to decolonization. And yeah, you know, there's a whole mix of perspectives in there. And I guess it is the challenge, which is that the majority, probably the majority of people certainly see the challenge and the need for this stuff. But as you say, it's just, it potentially is not easy for people to kind of make it happen necessarily. So I think that is the ongoing challenge. Yeah, it seems to be a challenge that needs to go back to the government in one way or another. You know, the 10 point plan being there, wanting to create the greener buildings as a wide thing and really not having a funding stream or a funding availability to be able to do it. But it might not only be funding that goes with it. I mean, a key part to how this will all move forward is technology and innovation i think in the homes market it has stagnated and stalled for a number of years because you know it became very easy to build houses that were or homes or you know even even blocks of flats that are a little bit of a carbon copy of each other you know and what that does is it creates a great big long huge well developed mature supply chain which is effective on all sides so if you take gas boilers and all the home builders in the uk as an example all the homes that are built in the UK are fitted with a gas boiler. So that supply chain is very mature and very well established. Disrupting that and changing to an entirely different piece of equipment is not a small challenge. Have you had any of that type of procurement challenge or supply chain challenge with your clients? I think kind of nothing specific I can think of, but I think that is an overall challenge. And I mentioned our kind of study around the future home standard that, mm. and the fact that we'd identified that you know, there would be at this point in time, probably a cost premium 
in most cases. Yeah, that probably is partly to do with the issue you're talking about there around kind of volume of technology, for example, that's available and, and basically how many people out there know how to install it and things like that. So over time, that will probably kind of normalize and adjust. I guess a point I would raise is that actually there's a sweet spot here, which is where driving to a more sustainable home also improves the customer experience and mm-hmm. the experience of the home user. And so I guess in a way, that's the challenge as I see it for us all. Yes, of course, the government has a part to play, but I think actually we as a collective industry, I suppose, have to kind of step up to help solve all these problems we're talking about. And I think, you know, the industry sector is doing that. But I guess an example I pick on, you know, is, for example, intelligent building technology, mm-hmm. where actually you can drive operational efficiency so you can help work towards some of the sustainability challenges that exist. But at the same time, you can also enhance the experience of the end user and the customer. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing in the build trend sector. You know, we're seeing clients embrace and implement intelligent building technology to achieve both of those aims, you know, enhance the operation of the building or the asset and also deliver that exceptional customer experience as well. So I think where we start to achieve, you know, a combination of or, you know, multiple benefits like that, that's great. And that's the direction we need to go in with it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That was a point I was going to come to. I think there is a role for the private organisations and the world of consultancy. And something that we really feel quite passionate about is that whole piece of driving the industry together. That was, you know, one of the key drivers of getting this podcast going and inviting people along and getting everyone to listen to it so we can get all the perspectives. You know, the idea from this is to have people talking from all sides of the dice if you like because it is a complicated world that you know people really need help with and i think the commercial world as well as the domestic world there's a huge amount of people that one don't know how to access the advice that they might need in terms of you know why to do it to understand fully the you know the benefit of doing so even if you don't see a monetary benefit straight away I think that whole piece there is really important. The role of the private consultancy world, I think, is to create process, systems, methodology, advice that can be freely and publicly available. What's your thoughts around that? Because that really breaks the consultancy model, doesn't it, to some degree? No, well, you know, I think that definitely a place for that and kind of sharing of knowledge is obviously really, really important. I guess to your kind of point before that around perspectives you know different perspectives i think Mm. it is really important you know i think different kinds of consultants might well have different perspectives but therein lies the opportunity in terms of when you combine those perspectives actually you start to get a kind of balanced solution around that so you know when you bring all those professional disciplines together to collaborate around the problem that's a sweet spot as well but there's certainly a place for you know for knowledge sharing and you know i've seen a lot of that i think across the industry really Mm. I feel like I'm seeing more of it than we did previously and you know with some of the other challenges that that we've collectively all solved as we've gone along but I think this appears to be one of those things that is driving people together and pulling people together and I think it coinciding with the pandemic because I have really seen people's appreciation of the sustainability agenda in its wider context increase throughout the pandemic what's your experience of that? Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems that in the last couple of years, particularly, I guess the focus on it has elevated. Uh, I guess that is a combination. I think I mentioned 
some of the factors earlier, but it's certainly a combination of just kind of exposure in the media, no question, statutory changes that are coming forward, whether it be around, you know, the EPC changes for residential properties in 25, or as I've mentioned already, you know, the future home standard, which will be fully implemented in 25 as well. But then also, of course, we've touched on the, you know, the investor demand, which I think has been emerging for actually quite a number of years now. Mm. But that's certainly, you know, really coming to the fore. And then, you know, again, wrapping all that together, really that end customer kind of demand around this. And I think that combination of factors has really, uh, you know, shone a light on this issue in the sector. And so, you know, I agree with you that in probably the last two or three years, it's become, obviously it's always been, sustainability has always been a key focus for as long as I can remember, you know, and I've been in the industry for 13 years, but I think, yeah, there's an even bigger focus, but I think overall that's probably coinciding with the fact that a lot of people accept that the climate issue is a kind of an emergency now. Right. And so that has definitely upped the ante in terms of the pace and scale that we need to go at to make some real impact against it. I think, again, I see one of the biggest challenges in the home sector is a lack of understanding or a lack of desire to understand in some areas. Yeah, That's always going to be one of the challenges. Whatever happens to the home, there's two bits that are important. There's cost and disruption. So a lot of people just don't understand the value or understand or appreciate that the disruption's worth it in, you know, in, in that context. So with things, you know, like the public showing from Insulate Britain and how they've been reported on and, you know, how that as a movement has been seen by the wider or general public and maybe, you know, not that organisation specifically, but that's just the one that came to mind. Do you feel we have, as the general public, it's difficult for you and I because we work specifically close to the industry, but do you feel there's enough general information out there for the public to heighten this as a real emergency as you say it's difficult to answer because you know i'm exposed to it a lot through kind of you know the day job as it were i guess organizations like the one you mentioned there and obviously others previously have you know obviously raised awareness on the issues so that to that extent i guess that's been pretty i suspect clearly noted by a lot of people out there and it does you know seem to be a lot of information available certainly if you want to have access to it so I think it is there. I guess it's just to our earlier points really around how individuals perhaps can make a difference. But again, you know, going back to the managed residential sectors generally, built to rent, that is where, as you said, really, I think at the beginning, they present a great kind of value proposition to society and to the areas that they're investing in, because they can make some of these positive differences at scale. And that's really exciting. Definitely, there are a lot of good opportunities in the build and the construction stage. My real fear sits with the fact that 80% of current properties in the UK will probably still be in use in 2050. So, you know, that's a that's no small feat to be yeah. tackling all of those, especially with the complexity of the UK estate. Because one of the other challenges I find with private rented homes is that social housing and build to rent tend to be a certain size and structure, if that makes sense like they're not normally expansive large properties whereas people's owner occupied homes are normally a lot bigger so therefore there's a lot more cost and a lot more challenge with decarbonization of those as well do you see that playing a factor yeah you know as you mentioned there you know the retrofit side of it is an enormous part of it obviously most of our built assets already exist so it's a huge challenge 
over the longer term, it will be interesting to see whether EPC ratings, for example, play you know an ever greater role in people's kind of economic decision making. You know, is it going to impact the value of a home? And I think that question is very difficult to answer. I certainly can't answer it. And of course, none of us have crystal ball. But if we were to look at what kind of indicators we've got around that now, and we look at as you mentioned, you know. The fact that institutional investors particularly, but actually all different kinds of investors have a really strong focus on ESG and I think increasingly see that as an important part of creating kind of valuable assets and assets that are going to kind of maximise their value in the future as well. You know, if we look at that as an indicator, then it would probably point to the fact that actually in time, the same is likely to be true of most assets. So, you know, that's one thing to look at, but that still doesn't necessarily answer our challenge that we already spoke around kind of actually how an individual, you know, owner-occupier makes it happen from a kind of financial point of view, because that's not necessarily easy or affordable for them. So that probably is a challenge, I think. And it's yeah. a, I don't have the answer for it. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> I don't think anyone does at the moment. That's the biggest challenge out there. You know, it, it's how do we get everybody on board, I guess, really, to make the right decisions and, you know, invest collectively to make the improvements that are needed. I've been speaking to some people who would off the back of the pandemic again. So we were bombarded with information, maybe too much information in one way or another in terms of you know every day being shown statistics about how things are going. And, you know, so we had a live understanding of how it was affecting the UK because the decarbonisation agenda is so important. And because this is a big challenge that the whole of the UK gets on board, do you think collectively all of us should be doing more, but mainly, you know, the media and the government should be doing more to push the messaging that people need to understand to try and really influence the hearts and minds? Again, yeah, difficult one. I think there's been a lot of positive stuff from both government and the media. And feels to me like the message has been well publicised and really well supported overall. So to that extent, it feels like there's an increased awareness. I guess it's like anything, there's probably going to be kind of always more that we can collectively do. And so I guess, you know, that's probably the answer is that actually we just all need to stay focused on it and keep it on the agenda. And that's the thing, isn't it? In terms of how we might go about incentivising the kind of owner-occupier piece, do you think taxation would be a potential route around that? So you get tax relief, perhaps, for converting your home, or conversely, you get tax penalised for not doing so? Well, I think, you know, I'm not a tax kind of expert. Me um, either, but it's just... But I, think, <laughs> I think that my gut feel is that that kind of, you know, measure would have to be carefully thought through because, you, you know, you've got to be careful that you don't create any kind of unintended consequences. And... I don't know if, for example, penalising people is the answer. You know, the really important thing is that everyone is kind of coming on the journey around sustainability. Yeah, I don't know. Just got to feel I'm not sure penalising people will be the way forward. I think certainly incentivization, you know, grant and kind of help yeah. would be a more, that feels like a more kind of positive way to address it for certainly on an owner-occupier level. Perhaps maybe a wider investment in the solution, you know, so a wider investment in the technology that's needed to actually achieve cost effective returns for people. You know, maybe that's the way forward. I think that's where there could be some really powerful stuff done around. And I've touched on the point already linked to our kind of future home standard piece, but mm. really 
you know, anything that helps drive kind of greater volume, you know, greater competitive tension in the retrofit markets around this challenge, that's going to be positive. So, you know, that could be things like grant funding, that could be incentivization, it could be, you know, access to aggregated purchasing schemes, you know. But I think that feels like a more kind of positive and supportive way for us all to go in the right direction rather than some kind of tax penalisation yeah. around people's homes, you know. I agree. It's how do you get to that point and where do you start that journey, if you like, because I'm sure there's a lot of desire out there to do it. But, you know, again, maybe it's incentives for organisations to spend more time in research and development to make more accessible market ready, you know, products that will lead to more energy efficient homes. Yeah, well, I think that was kind of my point earlier around, you know, industry and the sector. Yeah, there's, you know, there's stuff the government can do, sure, of course. And to be fair, you know, they are doing some really good stuff. But also, you know, the industry and the sector collectively can and is as well, to be fair, stepping up around it. And I think that's playing to the point you just made there around, you know, we will see new solutions, more volume, you know, all that usual good stuff that helps kind of bring the cost of doing it down and obviously for everybody that's going to be collectively a huge benefit do you think people are unsure around new and emerging technologies so for example if you were looking for a new home now and they said it doesn't have any radiators it's well insulated it's airtight and it's got heating provided by this ground source heat pump outside it heats underneath the floor and that heats your whole house what would be your initial thoughts around that just as opposed to going to buy a house with a boiler and radiators? I mean, I think it's all about kind of, you know, just having assurance around function, isn't it? And my sense is most people are quite open to new technology, provided they are confident that it's going to deliver what they need. And that's the key. And that's completely rational and completely fair enough, isn't it? So I think that's the key really is where you've got kind of proven technologies that deliver the function and the benefits that people need them to. I don't see why, and I can't see there being a situation where people aren't going to take that on, where it's economically rational to do it. That's the other bit that we've touched on. So in a similar vein, it's district heating systems and, you know, some of those suggestions and some housing estates that have been built over the last few years that do have a centralised heating system rather than one that's in itself. I feel that maybe not enough people know enough about the benefits of those types of systems that would make them look for one of those homes first is kind of like the point, I guess, that I was trying to get to. So they kind of seek out homes of the technology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If people were more knowledgeable and there was more readily available information out there, and maybe it's the role of the developers to push those types of homes more frequently and the benefits of those to attract people to them. But again, at the moment, they cost more money, don't they? There's a premium associated with that type of property rather than them. And I don't know if that exists. I don't know if people are willing to pay more for it. Yeah, I think it's a time in terms of kind of awareness and seeking out. I think it's partly is a time thing, and you know that awareness will grow over time. And you know, certainly some of the solutions you mentioned there are really exciting and definitely a part of the solution. I guess that's the thing to remember is you know there's probably not one solution to this. It's probably Mm. going to be about having a whole blend of technologies and solutions. So that's important to remember, I think. But yeah, I think customer awareness will only grow and that may well lead to some people forming preferences, I think, around different technologies. Yeah, I hope that would be the direction that we could see it going in. 
I think that rounds off what we've discussed really well, leading on through all of the challenges that we have. And really, this is going to be driven by knowledge, information, access to technology, costs that are going to be associated with it. But there is a genuine passion out there to do it. I think that's right. I think the note I would finish on is, you know, we actually are at a really exciting point because I think there is a broad awareness that this issue needs to be kind of addressed quickly. I think we've got a kind of, in a way, an alignment of objectives in public and private sector industry around actually, you know, greater clarity on where we're trying to get to exciting new technologies coming forward, investors and organisations that kind of are looking to make it happen. And actually, yeah, you know, end customers who also would like to embrace it. So I feel like we're all looking and pointing the same direction. And Mm. I think that's really exciting. And I can't see why together we can't make it happen. Excellent. Final question then. If you had the opportunity to have lunch with Boris Johnson tomorrow, thinking about this particular agenda, what would your conversation with him be? What would you be trying to influence him with? I think it's just, you know, we'd probably ask him just to obviously continue the support, look for any additional kind of incentives that could be brought forward in the context of all of the priorities the government have, of course. But I think, you know, we also, as I mentioned before, I think we as an industry need to make the commitment back to government as well, that we're going to collectively work on this with them and drive change as well, which of course is happening. But I think that's the thing, you know, it's not kind of government and industry, it's actually we're we're kind of working on this together really in the end. And that's probably the emphasis of it, I think. A really good point thank you thank you very much for joining us will i've really enjoyed the conversation thank you thanks for having me me too thank you for joining us everybody we'll see you next time on carbon times <laughs>